Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hello. And welcome to Series 2, Episode 6 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Now, before I begin, I've got to tell you about what's happened this morning. So this weekend, my friend is putting up some shelves and decorating our spare room. So I thought, I'm not going to have time to do the top and tail uh, in, in the first part of the week. I'm going to have to do it at the weekend. Dan's coming to put up some bits and to drill into the wall. I'm not going to be able to use my little red cupboard office thing to do the top of the show. And I thought, I've got a brilliant idea. I'll use the downstairs car park at the bottom of my flat. It'll be really quiet down there. I'll go down early on a Saturday morning. Surely no one's leaving then. Okay, so then I'm downstairs in the car park, in my car. And it turns out that is when everybody wants to leave their house. So there are people constantly walking past me. And they don't know that I'm podcasting. So basically, I'm just a woman in a car with a microphone by herself talking. I look like I've maybe lost my mind. So people keep walking past me and sort of giving me a, huh, weird smile. And I get to the point where I've done so many takes of this intro that I don't know what to do, that I don't know whether I'm making sense anymore. So I think, right, okay, I'm going to have to leave because then some more neighbours came downstairs and they seem to be partaking in some sort of shouting competition that I hadn't been made aware of. So I'm now out on the street. I mean, I'm not sort of outside. I'm in the car in this nice little cul-de-sac around the corner from my house. But what is happening now? One or two of the neighbours have looked out to see what I'm doing. They're very confused. A car's about to go past. I'm about to have a jogger go past. She, she is someone that lives in my block. She saw me doing this in the car park. She clearly walked through the car park. And now she's jogged past me in the street watching me do this. Basically what I'm saying is to do the intro for the podcast this week, I'm very willing to look slightly mad in my car for you. Um, okay, and now on to the emails, uh, which I do every week, uh, emails from listeners. If you'd like to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. And um, just to remind you again, if you want to tweet or Instagram or do a review uh, of the podcast on any of the uh, streaming platforms, I would really appreciate that. Right. The first email is here. Hi, Susie. First of all, thank you so much for your podcast. I stumbled across it when you first posted the episode of Dustin Lance Back, as I'm such a big fan of his work, advocacy, and have been looking forward to Mondays ever since. Your podcasts have made this whole extremely weird and stressful year something to look forward to and allowed me to unwind and breathe for a few minutes. I'm Amelie, she, her, a 20-year-old girl currently studying political science and English literature and culture in Frankfurt. However, I'm originally from a small conservative town in the south of Germany, so 
coincidentally, I had close to no LGBTQIA plus representation in real life or in the German media growing up, apart from one soap opera I used to watch at my grandparents' house, which actually had a lesbian and gay couple in their storylines, which for the early 2000s in Germany was quite a big deal to see. It's called, oh, here we go, Verboten Libra, a.k.a. Forbidden Love. It was a delicious train wreck of a show, but hey, it had some queer representation, so I'll give them that. The first time I remember starting to question my sexuality was in the height of the YouTube coming out video phase in 2013. I watched every video religiously, not fully knowing why I was so incredibly touched and moved by every story. But it was the start of my, I'm just a very strong LGBTQIA plus alley phase. Every video started with the phrase, I always knew I was different from a young age. And I think that always sort of threw me off when watching those videos. Because it was then sort of ingrained in me that that was the only way to know that you're queer. To just always have known. When I was young, I never really questioned my sexuality. I had way too many boyfriends in kindergarten and primary school and generally just never felt different, whatever that may look like. But then again, looking back... I definitely had so many girl crushes that I brushed off as I just want to be their very best friends and had one of those very intense female friendships you talked about in one of your episodes or indications like only two times a guy made a proper move on me and I felt physically sick. Whoopsie. Because I grew up in a very small judgmental town, there weren't any LGBTQIA people, which made my coming out and finding myself experience much more confusing as I had no role models or queer people to talk to. That led to three very dark and confusing years where I was immensely struggling with my identity and sexuality. I came out as queer to my then best friend, the one I had the intense female friendship with when I was 16. She was brilliant about it. It felt like I could breathe again. And I will always be forever thankful to her for that. It wasn't until I moved to London after I finished my A-levels to be an au pair for a year when I really felt free to be fully out and proud. Seeing so many queer people all over the city was so incredibly important and influential to my experience. So I was fully out to my brilliant au pair family and all the friends I made. I went to my first gay club and to my first pride, which was truly one of the best days of my life so far. Very cheesy, I'm sorry. I came out to my mum when I was 18, having just moved to London, and I'm so lucky to have her, as she was so supportive and loving. And although I've yet to have that conversation with my dad, I know that mum has told him about it, after checking with me, I should add, and I can feel he's making an effort to be much more inclusive with his language, which I appreciate so much. I am truly one very lucky girl. I still don't feel secure in my identity or sexuality or specific labels. That's one reason I like queer. There isn't really an equivalent in German. I just take it day by day and continue to learn and grow. With all that being said, the LGBTQIA plus representation in all its different forms is so incredibly important and would definitely have saved me a few confusing and dark moments that I wouldn't wish on anyone. So thank you again for doing your podcast and providing a platform for many people to share their stories. I know it would have helped me so, so much in those years in my early teens. And it still helps me now in my early 20s. Uh, she then goes on to say that she has her first ever date with a girl coming up and she wants me to wish her luck I I wish you lots and lots of luck she then put a PS at the bottom which really made me chuckle I'm so sorry that this is so long but to set the scene it's currently raining like crazy I'm listening to Folklore by Taylor Swift on repeat and drinking tea so I guess I was in the mood to write and you were my victim ha ha um, 
thank you so much for getting in touch, Emily. Um, I really enjoyed your email and I'm sure lots and lots of people will really connect with you on many of the things that you've said. Um, I hope you have a wonderful time on your first date. Um, but if it doesn't go well, remember, there'll be lots more dates and it'll be fine. OK, let's have another one. This is from Gemma. Hi, Susie. I've never really been an avid listener to podcasts, but I've been a big fan of your comedy since I stumbled into an underground comedy club in Leicester Square one evening when I was in London for a conference in around 2011. I know exactly the club you're talking about. I used to be there a lot. Between 2011 and 2016, I was there so much, working out how to be funny. Then I saw you a couple of times at the Best of the Fest at the Fringe, and it's been great to see you gain fame in the last few years. I've seen you talk about your podcast and decided to give the latest episode with Steph a listen as I was walking home tonight. And I felt compelled to email you to say that it's great that you're using platform to interview members of the community who aren't necessarily famously gay. I've always flinched when, time after time, interviews focus on how much prejudice people in our community face and how many have been ostracised by their families and friends. Don't get me wrong, the fact that this still exists within our community is horrendous, but sometimes I feel like focusing on that alone can be, in all honesty, quite depressing. Sometimes in the media, as if we can't be an interesting gay without having a harrowing backstory. I love how you guys talked about things like coming out for Steph weren't a big deal, and that friends and family have been very accepting. This, on the whole, is the experience of my wife and I, and it's nice to hear as it reinforces what I know to be true, that our relationships and families are just as normal as any other, and we shouldn't be defined by our sexuality or any associated struggles. This may seem like a small thing to many, but ironically, you guys talking about coming out and being gay in today's society as relatively uncomplicated is a breath of fresh air to me. I realise I'm in a very fortunate position and many aren't so lucky, but I think it's important for younger members of the community to see how happy, settled and accepted you can be as a gay person. And Steph's interview really showed that. Um, thanks so much for getting in touch, Gemma. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I had that conversation with, with my producer after interviewing Steph. That I was so delighted to share a story that was uncomplicated and was about acceptance. And there wasn't loads of homophobia in it, which I think is really important. And for younger people that are listening or people new to the community, you're absolutely right, Gemma. I really want um, everyone to hear those stories as well. So thank you for highlighting that and for reminding me how important those stories are. OK, let's get on with today's episode. I think you'll enjoy this one too, Gemma. It's with Dennis O'Hare, who I think is brilliant. I've been a massive fan of his work for a long time. He's an actor. You might have seen him in American Horror Story or True Blood or on, on stage somewhere in the UK or in America. He's a very highly praised uh, and celebrated actor. And it was very exciting for me to get to talk to him. As many of you know, I've got a bit of an acting background. So talking to... Uh, someone like Dennis is very, very exciting for me, as you will be able to hear uh, from the podcast. And I'd like to say a quick thank you to my dear friend, Mark Pinkosh, who's an old friend of Dennis's and helped set up this interview for me. Thanks for that, Mark. OK, I hope you enjoy this. Here's my chat with the wonderful Dennis O'Hare. Oh, listeners, I am so excited for today's guest, Tony winner, Emmy nominee, Dennis O'Hare a highly celebrated actor, both on stage and screen, a writer, a storyteller. It's the careful detail and precision that he brings to his characters that has always made me a huge fan of his work. His resume is highly impressive, 
True Blood, Dallas Buyers Club, Milk, American Horror Story, a personal favorite of mine, The Good Wife, The Good Fight, This Is Us, Big Little Lies. I mean, and that doesn't even scratch the surface. I was particularly moved by the film he wrote and starred in, The Parting Glass, which is brilliant and you can watch right now on Amazon if you want to. You should. You absolutely should. I am so delighted and excited to welcome to the show, Dennis O'Hare. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm, I, what, a, what a lovely introduction, and I'm so glad you watched The Parting Glass. Oh, my God. Oh, it's such a good film. Thank you. You know, Stephen, Stephen Moyer directed it. Yes, yes, so I learned. And Anna Paquin, so uh, a couple of, you know, uh, fellow countrymen. And um, Moyer is from Essex, you know. Oh, really? I didn't know that. He hides it very well. He gets very posh, but when he gets down and dirty, it all comes out. I like that. Yes, it was a great film. I found it very moving, very upsetting. Thank um, you. And especially the, I mean, I'm not going to give it away to the listeners because you should absolutely go and watch it, but the scene where you're sat on the steps right at the end oh, is, oh, oh, geez, it got me right, right there. That, that was, you know, we, we ended up shooting that in Canada. It, was, it meant to be in Missouri, but we had to shoot in Canada for all sorts of reasons. And, uh, you know, it, weather was crazy because it would snow and then it would not snow and then it would rain and then it would clear off the snow and then it would snow again. So continuity was really tricky, but that was a beautiful day. That last day, it was like four in the morning, five in the morning or something like that when we shot that. Yeah. It's really, it's really powerful. It's really great. Oh, thank you for seeing it. I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased you saw it. Thank you for that. And Cynthia Nixon's in it. She's great in it as well. She's amazing in it. Melissa Leo's amazing in it. Ed Asner, who I really adore. Really good cast. And Risa Fans, another, you know, yes. a, a Welshman. A Welshman, yeah. Yeah. He's doing a, he's doing a great, great accent. He does. I was he immediately was like, though. is he going to be Welsh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you're you live in Paris these days, don't you? I live in Paris. I am a refugee. Um, you know, we we my husband turned to me the day after the election in 2016 when you know he who shall not be named was elected, and he said we got to get out of here. And I was like, I know, I know. He goes, No, no, no. We have to get out of here. And so we did. You know, we we took some time to get things together, sell an apartment, find my son a school in Paris. And we moved. It took it took us two years, uh, not not quite two years. Um, and we moved in 2018, in August 2018, to Paris. And we feel we made the right decision. Do you know what? I think you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> I think you. I mean, not only politics, you know, because he he's he's wrecked the country, but he's created an atmosphere that promotes racism. And my husband is black, and my son is black, and uh, I despise guns. And, you know, the Second Amendment has been massively misinterpreted in the United States um, since the 70s. It's been, a, it's been a crazy misinterpretation. And the country is literally lawless with people with guns. And then you take his mismanagement of COVID, and it actually is now a dangerous place to be. It's no uh, coincidence that Americans are blocked from coming to Europe. Yeah, it's an insane time. And I'm sure every time you look at the news, you're like, we made a great choice. Well, and you know, the thing is, people are like, oh, my God, didn't you like New York? And I'm like, New York is fantastic. It's one of the best cities in the world. And the only problem with New York is that it's in America. And yeah. you know, I have tons of family in America. And I have tons of friends in America. And I love America. And I love Americans. But I don't love what's happening to the country. No, it must be a, a strange thing to feel like you're sort of lost within your home country. Like this doesn't belong to me anymore because it feels, yeah, like lawless. Well, and do you, uh, do you identify as as British or do you have like a sub identification? 
No, I'm I'm British. I'm from um, a place called Portsmouth, which is down. I know the Portsmouth. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. I like it there, but I feel like a Londoner. Oh, so, so you've sort of switched identities. Now you're a Londoner. Yeah, yeah. Well, I moved here when I was 18 to go to like theatre school and then did like all of my growing up in London and sort of worked out who I was here. And so... But are you are you like one neighborhood? Are you like are you like a Camden Town girl? Are you like you oh, know? no, I can't afford Camden Town, no. unfortunately. <laughs> I'm I mean, the dream is hey, maybe one day, who knows? But I'm in the I'm in the burbs. I'm in the suburbs. Nice. Very green. But it's nice. I like it. I mean, you've spent time in London on, on stage, haven't yeah. you? You've done stuff at the Donmar? I did. You know, I, I funnily enough, I did a play years ago by John Logan, great playwright uh, and screenwriter called Never the Sinner. And we did it um, in Exeter. So I was in Exeter. Oh. And um, I spent maybe maybe two months in Exeter. And then we came into the West End at the Playhouse Theater down by the Embankment. Oh, I know that theater, yeah. I was there during the poll tax riots of Margaret Thatcher. I was there. Wow. They actually closed. I mean, I was I was out to lunch. at. I got a Wimpy Burger and um, sharing sure. cross station. And I couldn't get back into the theater because the police had pushed all the protesters down from Trafalgar Square, down toward Hungerford Bridge across the embankment. And I couldn't get to the theater. And we had to cancel the show for that day because of the police action. It was crazy. It was actually a really violent riot. I've never seen that sort of like violence before. Well, welcome to London. <laughs> uh, welcome. <laughs> Enjoy your time here. No, then I, I worked at the Donmar in 2002. We did a play called Take Me Out There. And that's what you won the Tony for, isn't it? Eventually, yeah. We, we did it in the Donmar, and then we did it off-Broadway in New York at The Public. And then we moved to Broadway to the Walter Kerr in, in 2003. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had already worked with Sam Mendes. We had done uh, Cabaret together um, in 1998. Who did you play in Cabaret? I played Ernst Ludwig, the Nazi, of course. That's what I do now, all these parts. like. Does he sing Tomorrow Belongs? He does. Yes. He does. And in fact, you know, Mendes said the funniest thing to me because I – you know, I've done musicals a lot, but I've also kind of a straight actor and I pretend I didn't know how to do musicals, but I also, I got out of practice. And so I didn't know how to act a song and I was kind of sawing the air and Sam was like, no, no, no. What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I don't know. He goes, don't act out the words. He said, just imagine you're singing a song that makes you cry. And I went, uh, he said, come on, what makes you cry? I was like, well, Danny boy, if I'm Irish. Yep. And he was like, yeah, you're singing Danny Boy. And I got it. I got it in one. I was like, oh, okay. It was a, it was a great direction. You've got an incredible, like your career is just amazing. Oh. You've done theatre, musicals. Did you major in poetry? I don't really know how American. I, 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 was, I, was. <laughs> I don't know how the American school system works, but I know people say majoring. I lost my nerve. So I was, I was a poetry major, maybe even undeclared for about a year and a half. And then I sort of flipped out and was like, no, I have to get a, I have to get a real degree. And so I got a, a BS, which is, you know, a bachelor's of science in speech, which is what they gave at my university for theater. So I got right. an even more useless degree than poetry. I got a, you know, <laughs> even really, if, if there can be such a thing, I did it. But I loved, love, love my poetry uh, courses. I love being with the poets. And in fact, I bought my son the Oxford Annotated American uh, Anthology of Poetry and we read it almost every night. Oh, that's so nice. So you, going back all the way, so you grew up in Michigan, is that right? I did. Because you're from yeah. a very musical family, aren't you? I am, you know, on my mom's side. My, my dad's side is all, oddly enough, painting, um, kind of craft people, crafts painters. 
my mom's all musicians. My my grandmother was a a cellist, a flapper. She was an actual flapper. Wow. And she, yeah, and we have pictures <laughs> of her in her flapper outfits. And she ran around um, with these two or three other girls in uh, a girl all girl band, and they played trumpet and drums and cello. You know that famous combination. I love it. And they played on the radio. We have a, a great photograph of them sitting in some uh, potted palm lounge with a great carpet. Um, wearing their beaded head headbands and playing. Um, she died when my mom was five, so I never knew her, obviously. Um, and my mom was shipped off to Kansas. And my mother was a church organist and a pianist. Her sister was a pianist. Her other sister was a cellist who was married to a violinist who played for Detroit Symphony. So growing up, oh, wow. I used to go to see the symphony and see my uncle play. So you were used to sort of seeing people on stage, I guess. Yeah, in a different capacity, music. And in fact, yeah. you know, funnily enough, my mom was the... Um, church organist. And I used to, when I was about four or five, I would sit with her um, on the altar while she played and sort of get the backstage view and watch her play. And I would even get down at her feet and I would use my hands to pick out the pedal notes, the bass notes for her when she played. Um, and then I was a church organist when I was about eight or nine. And then I played in high school, I played church organ a little bit. And then I got fired because I didn't command enough authority. You know, that's fine. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I continued to play piano. I played oboe and clarinet, and I played recorders and all sorts of things. That's very impressive. So growing up, you were sort of someone that had a, sort of an artistic flair. You know, it's funny. I, I do think that music is inborn, meaning you're born with a certain disposition, and if if you develop it properly, then you can you know become a good musician. I, I was lazy and undisciplined, and so I'm a hack. Uh, I'm I'm okay, but. I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a great musician, um, but I have the raw talent by my nature, I guess, from my mom. And I, I'm great, really grateful for that. And, you know, also as a singer, I, I started singing when I was young and I um, was actually going to major in opera. And so I auditioned for the University of Michigan Opera School at the same time as I also applied for Northwestern. And I got into both and I decided to go to the place that was farther away from home. Because at that point, 18, you know, already being gay and knowing I was gay, I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to get away from these people. And so, uh, you know, University of Michigan was 45 minutes from my parents' house and Northwestern was six hours. So there you go. That was the choice, the fateful choice. I didn't become an opera singer. Wow. That's incredible that you had those two choices. You know, I don't think I ever would have made it as an opera singer. I don't have the, I don't have the actual stuff. Most people have such gifted voices. They're, they're, they're so beyond talented. And it's a physical thing that I just don't have. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very nice singer. I'm not ever going to be a great singer. You know, and I, I've sung on Broadway a lot and I've never loved my voice. And you know a true Broadway singer when you hear them because they love listening to themselves. You can tell they yeah, love it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You know? I'm really into I'm really into musicals. Yeah. I grew up doing it. Yeah, You know it. the like, ones who like Manny Patinkin. Yeah. That man loves yeah. to hear himself sing. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. I know exactly what you mean. So what kind of teen, what were you like as a teenager? Were you, say when you were still in high school, were you, were you performing then? I was, you know, I got, I got hooked into the musical uh, theater world really, really quickly. And so freshman year of high school, I did Once Upon a Mattress. And um, I was the only person who could sing the high notes. So they gave me both the gesture and the minstrel. They put the parts together for me. 
And then uh, on sophomore year, I did Jesus Christ Superstar. I played pilot. And then junior year, we did the Mikado, which is really ambitious. And I played Nanki Poo, the tenor. Yes, that is crazy. ambitious for a high school production. Yeah. And then senior year, we did um, uh, Man of La Mancha. And I was you know, still fat as a child. I was pretty pudgy. And so I played Sancho Panza. Um, you know, the sidekick to Don Quixote. Uh-huh. And that really kind of set me on on my course. And somewhere in there, I think about 16, I went to a summer theater camp called Cranbrook, which is a very, very um, cool, advanced, uh, oddly artistically, I don't know, liberal place in Michigan. And it's called Cranbrook. And I learned about Stanislavski. And I took Stanislavski and came back and tortured everybody in my high school about, no, but why? Why are you singing? No. I mean, what'd you do before the song? What were you feeling before the song? Where, what'd you eat this morning before that song? I mean, is, 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 why, why, why would you sing that note at that moment? Anyway, I made them all crazy. But um, and that sort of launched me into acting, just doing musicals, you know? And so you went off, you went to Northwestern. I did Northwestern in uh, suburban uh, suburban Chicago, which is a, a great, great, great place. It's got a big, big, big population of TV people. Um, right, more TV than theater. Although there a lot of theater people went to Northwestern, um, and you know, in my era, David Schwimmer went there. He was a couple years behind me, yeah. three years behind me. Margie Helgenberger, um, God, a, a lot of writer producers. A lot of the producers of the Roseanne Show went there. Stephen Colbert went there. Oh, wow. Um, you know, just a lot of really, really great people. Um, so did it feel like an exciting place to be? Who knows? You know, when you're 18, do you really know? I mean, every place feels both exciting and awful. Um, right. You know, and I did not have a good time there. Um, I, I, I was not happy and I hated it. I hated it. I, um, I took mostly history and foreign languages. I took two years of French, two years of Russian. German literature, Russian literature, French literature, poetry. <laughs> I took no theater courses. I finally buckled down and took my, I took acting, of course, but I finally buckled down and took all my theater courses at the last possible minute, lived off campus, waited tables, drank way too much, wore black, grew big beards, starved myself, you know, was permanently depressed. Just, But I think I would have been that anywhere I went. I think that was just my journey that at 18, that's the kid I wanted to be. I wanted to be, I started smoking and I wanted to be that crazy, awful, dark child, um, you know, courting sadness, listening, only listening to Joni Mitchell and, you know. Drink, writing poetry. Writing poetry, drinking too much bourbon. That's who I wanted sure. to be. It's what, that's what I wanted to be. So it's so hard for me to judge. Was it that school or would I have been the same no matter where I went? I probably would have been the same no matter where I went, you know. Yeah. And if you hadn't been there, you might not be where you are now. So it was a great school. I had a really great acting teacher. I, I, David Downs, a really great acting teacher. And again, he taught Stanislavski, um, which is rare. I feel like that's not done much anymore. And, um, you know, it, it isn't the method people get that mixed up. Um, mm. Stanislavski is Stanislavski. It's, it's pure acting training via Chekhov. And his version came through a woman named Alvina Krauss. So it was, you know, one step away from from Chekhov and Michael Chekhov, and then put through this woman's uh, sort of veil, and then my my teacher David Downs reinterpreted her. But I'm I'm ever so grateful for it. And 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 oddly enough, the poetry taught me more about acting in many ways than any acting school ever did. How so? Well, you know, uh, the poetic principles are ones you can apply to anything. So the 
craft of poetry, the discipline of poetry, the care and the rigor of poetry, acting as a craft. You know, I, I, mm. I'm very, very big on, on the idea of craft and technique and poetry is all about technique. But poetry also, you know, has the great metaphorical creations. There's a thing called synecdoche. And synecdoche is the principle of implying the whole with one thing. So a famous example is in, in a Th Thomas Hardy poem, the line is, this is where the dead feet walked in, which is a way for someone to talk about their father, that my father used to come in through this door every night. This is where the dead feet walked in. So the feet stand in for the living man. It's a beautiful, unbelievable line. And there's a same principle in acting. When Puck, you know, when Puck comes out and Puck is talking to the audience, he says he can circle the globe in, I think, whatever it is, a minute. And he doesn't have to do it. He has to simply like give a strange feint to his left or a quick jerk of his body to give the idea that he could have done that. So synecdoche is the principle of using very little to, sh to illustrate a lot. And that's a great acting principle. And I think that's something that you really see in your work. Like, I think it's the subtleties within like great character performances that make, you know, characters really believable. Like, you know, Liz Taylor in American oh. Horror Story. It's the, Love it's the small. Yeah. I mean, such a great, so great. And so great with the bold head. Um, yes. You know, it's, it's the subtleties of those people that that's where the, the truth is, isn't it? That's where you're like, oh, I see you. you're a real person because you've got these sort of little minutiae things that I can see you working out something. Yeah. And also I, I really do. I, I'm a great believer in flawed people. And mm. I think all people are flawed, obviously. And I think all characters are flawed. And I, I find people who think their characters are flawless so boring. Yeah. There, there are some actors who you can just see that they, they cannot allow their character to be ugly or to be wrong. The character mm. always has to be right. It's so boring. It's such boring acting. You know, to me, the best characters are those who they lose their temper. They say the wrong thing. Yeah. They, they sneer. They, they're ugly. They show their ugliness. They show their flaws. And surely they're far more interesting to play. Far more interesting. I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing. That's why Iago is a better part than Othello because mm -hmm. it's a better part. Um, Mercutio is a better part than Romeo. Oh, Maybe. yeah, sure. Sorry, arguably. Well, I could be I wrong about so. that one. I know I'm with you on that, but that's because I want to do an all-female cast and play Mercutio. So that's oh, that's it's the best part in the world. <laughs> and he dies in Act Three, and you can go back and play cards backstage. You can chill backstage into the curtain call. It's lovely. Exactly <laughs> with Tybalt and with you know the friar and other people. It's great. So when you were back at Northwestern, were you out at that point? Did you know that you were? You, you said you were aware that you were gay when you sort of ran off to go to college. But were you? Yeah, I knew at five. Oh my god! Really. I was out at five. I, mean, I, I would say I was out. I mean, I was having sex at 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. With my best friend. Um, and, you know, playing around at five and six, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted. Um, you know, I have this indelible memory of sitting with my mother and I had three sisters and two of my sisters watching The Way We Were. And Robert Redford was there with his shirt off. And my mother or one of my sisters was like, oh, my God. Hello. Look at that. And me at like 11 or 12 didn't say it, but thought, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, you know, I already knew. And I, I think I, I sort of didn't know that that thing that I felt 
was also the same thing as words, bad words like fag or bad words like homo or bad words like gay, you know, are not a bad word, but that those words to me, I didn't understand that those things were linked until I was about 14 or 15. And then I started to put that together to go, oh, those words mean this. And I definitely struggled because I wanted to be a priest. I was very, very Catholic. I was very religious. Oh, wow. And so I had a really hard time with it guilt-wise. I assumed I was condemned to hell. I assumed that I was going to be miserable. And so I prayed to have it taken away. I, I spent so much of my, of my teen years desperately wishing to not be what I was. And uh, when I went to college, I remember... My best friend at that time was sort of in love with me and I wasn't in love with him. And he's made a pass at me and I was like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. Goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm not being gay anymore. I'm not doing that. I'm straight. And I went to college and I was going to be straight. And I was there maybe, maybe a week, maybe two weeks. <laughs> I got drunk and I ended up sleeping with the director of the play I was doing. And I woke up and I was like, oh, damn it. I forgot to be straight. Oh, you know, and. I sort of gave up then. I was like, all right, I'm not straight. And I joined the Gay Alliance at school, um, like in the third week or fourth week, and met um, some of my lifelong friends, Frank DeCaro, who is an amazing humorist and writer, my friend Harry Althaus, who is an amazing actor, my friend James C., who's my best friend who lives in um, L.A., and my friend Darren Perkins, who's a dancer in Germany. We became this crazy group of, oh, and Tim Engel, that's right this crazy group of out gay men at 18 who would run around Northwestern and terrorize people. We were this, we were a gang, we were a gay gang and we were fearless and we were loud and we didn't care. It was great. So that was the, that was the higher points of college, I'm guessing. Yeah. Finding those people and, and find, yeah, finding your tribe, you know, really, really finding your tribe. Yeah, totally. Um, and you know, even in high school, I came out in high school, I came out I came out to my psychology teacher when I was a junior in high school, which is about, you know, 16, 17. Mm. And, could not have gone worse. Um, really, could not have gone worse. Again, I was at a Catholic all boys uh, high school, right? Run by Christian Brothers of Ireland, and he told me to shut my mouth and never talk about it to anyone ever again. Uh. He was he was the, psych the psychology teacher, Mr. O'Brien. I will never forgive him for that ever. No. And um, some of the kids knew, and by the time I was senior, almost everybody knew I was gay because I had come out, and I lost a lot of friendships over it. Um, a lot of people decided to turn their back on me and a lot of people didn't. That's the great thing, you know, in, in an all boys Catholic high school, a lot of these guys didn't, they accepted me and they protected me, you know, and, and that's, that's, and this is in 1979. That to me is staggering. Yeah. Of the, of the goodwill of people, the good nature of people. And that some people, that there are a lot of good people out there, truly. Oh, absolutely. And so after Northwestern, was it like, I'm going to Broadway? Is that what, what happened no. next? That, that's how I imagine it. That's how I imagine what I would do if I was like, right, that's it. I'm going to Broadway. You know, <laughs> I, was in, I was in Chicago. I had no money. Uh, I was non-union and um, I scratched around. Uh, I found a job waiting tables. I, I waited tables for a long time and bartending. And I luckily had made friends with John Logan, I mentioned before, who wrote the play Red mm -hmm. and um, many, many other movies. Um, Gladiator. Um, I can't even think of all of his movies right now. Oh my God, so many movies. But he, um, he was a playwright that I went to school with and he had written a play called Never the Sinner, which I did again in Chicago. Um, we got out of school and then he wrote a play called Hauptmann, which I ended up doing to great acclaim for a long time with him. 
Uh, and, you know, just started picking up jobs here and there um, in Chicago. Finally got my union card mm-hmm. and just did tons of plays. Oh, my God. Just did tons and tons of plays. Never paid my rent. So I always had to wait tables. Um, I think I finally quit waiting tables at one point and started temping. I got fired from waiting tables and started temping. I was a legal secretary because I typed really well. And um, I continued doing plays in Chicago, tons and tons of plays. And John Logan's play, Hauptman, sort of put me on the map in many ways. And we've revived it, I think, twice or three times. And ultimately, that play took me to New York. Right. Uh, and I moved to New York and never moved back. And the play didn't do well. It, it closed in about four weeks, did not do well. But I refused to go back. I had a suitcase and a guitar and a boombox, and that was it. And I was not coming home, back to Chicago. And so I didn't. And uh, I stayed, it was 1992, and I stayed in New York ever since. You know, I didn't make my Broadway debut for a couple of years. Uh-huh. But um, I found New York an extraordinary, extraordinarily friendly place to work. I found the acting community incredibly generous and incredibly tight and incredibly, I don't know, just it's an, it's an amazing community. The New York acting community is truly, truly an amazing community. I'm so grateful for it. It feels like it would be a really exciting play. I mean, also really tough because there's so many great people, but you know, I've been to New York a couple of times and like going into those sort of like late night kind of piano bars where you see where the waiters are also singers and you know, it's like the city that doesn't sleep, isn't it? It feels like the place where anything could happen. I think like, you know, like London, it's funny because if you're an actor in, in the UK, obviously TV, film and theater are mostly based in London. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because New York is the home of most theater casting. So regional theaters cast out of there. Lots of film cast there. Most TV in the day cast out of LA. So if you're going to have a TV career, you went to LA. If you were going to have a film career, you probably went to LA. If you're going to have a theater career, you stayed in New York. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, once I was in New York, I just stayed and got a lot of regional gigs out of there because you're not always just getting New York work. You're getting work in DC, Minneapolis, um, other places. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a, one of the great things about New York. There is a lot of work. Um, there's a lot of competition, but there's also a lot of work. There's a lot of voiceovers, a lot of commercials, a lot of stuff to be done. And then and a, and a lot of film as well, a lot of film and a lot of TV. And I loved it. I mean, I, I really, I, I, I've made, I made more friends in auditions in New York than anywhere else in the world, just sitting side by side with people and you just start talking to them and you realize one of you is going to get the part yeah, and one of you is not. And there's probably nothing you can do about yeah. it because you're all pretty good and you all look kind of the same except when you don't. And one is going to get the part. There, were, you know? there was a girl that I kept seeing at auditions that looked like me on a great day. <laughs> <laughs> and I would text my friend afterwards and be like, she was there again. She's got that part. She Didn't just, get that part. She just looks like me on a really, really good day if I had a tan as I well. I love it. You walk in and go, ugh. Oh, geez, you again? Surely you're working. Go home. So... You, I mean, you had this incredible career in, in theatre, and I guess one of the highlights must have been winning a Tony. Yeah, it was pretty good. For Take Me Out, which is, I mean, I don't know the, the work, but is it, is it a play about a gay baseball player? It is. Yeah. Richard Greenberg is the writer, an amazing, talented playwright. Um, and it's about a baseball player who comes out. And, you know, it's funny because it still hasn't happened. Yeah. Think about it. If that play was sort of positing that this is just going to happen. It's on the cusp. 
a major athlete who's not retired, yes. who's still in the business will come out and what will that do? And I played an accountant, a gay accountant who happened to um, meet him because he wanted you know, help with his books and he had a lot of money and he wanted to do something for charity. And it was a hilarious part. And the, you know, the trick of the play is that the accountant doesn't fall in love with him. The accountant falls in love with baseball. Right. And he becomes a huge freak for baseball. And it's a, it's a beautiful, heartbreaking play in many, many ways. And um, the, the center for me was a monologue that about maybe about 20 minute monologue that oh, wow. this guy, maybe, maybe less than that. It felt like 20 minutes to me. Maybe it was 10, <laughs> but this guy Mason Marzak gave in the middle of the, of the play about how much he loves baseball. And uh, it was, it's just a beautiful, beautiful experience. Um, and as I say, we did it to Don Mar and then we did it uh, uh, off Broadway and then Broadway. And, you know, I, I didn't, I was 40 when I got that play and I was a little bit like, this is kind of my last chance. If I don't win something now, I'm done. And I wasn't really looking to win awards, but, you know, everybody wants to win an award. And, you know, after, and, and just the way the season lined up, it was the right part at the right time for the right actor. Um, I felt very lucky to have that part. I felt married to that part in a great way. I really understood it. Uh, I inhabited it in a great way. And it just hit, you know, it, yeah. it really it hit the zeitgeist at the right time. What was that um, moment like of being at the Tonys? Because I'm someone that like grew up, as I said before, like loving theatre and loving film. And so I'm, you know, I'm someone that like stays up late to watch the Oscars or, you know, I'm that. like, I, you know, I, I love all of that stuff. And I love sort of the glitz and the glamour of it. And, and, and you know, the Tonys always seem particularly exciting because it's often you'll see the theatre and you'll sort of go, oh, that might come to the West End or we might get that soon. And so what was that moment like when they called out your name? It was weird because I was, I was up against my fellow castmate, Daniel Sanjata, a wonderful actor. I was up against Phil Hoffman, you know, Robert Sean Leonard, um, and some, I can't remember the, the fifth person, but I was sort of the, the money was all on me to win. Right. So, and people were predicting me to win and, and articles about it, which is terrible. No, that the pressure's too much. Then I can only lose. I mean, I can lose right. twice. <laughs> if I lose, I'm the biggest loser in the world. Whoa. Oh no. He fumbled. What? It was his. What? What an idiot. You know, so it was mostly just kind of weird, sagging relief to go, oh, God, good. I didn't mess up, <laughs> you know, to get it. My mother and father were there. It was, their, it was their 50th wedding anniversary. You know, half my family was there. There's enormous pressure to to do this thing. And, of course, I was thrilled. I was really, really, really happy to win. Um, it's really exciting. You're terrified you're going to forget somebody's name. I didn't forget anybody's name. Yeah, of course. I was happy about that. It's surreal because you get whisked off immediately backstage and you're holding the statue, the, the thing rather, and getting your picture taken and you're talking to everybody, um, repeating the same stories and you're whisked off somewhere else and then you're put somewhere else and the ceremony is going on. You've lost your date. You've lost your family. You have no idea where you're going. You've lost your bag. Where's my stuff? <laughs> and you're just running around doing interviews. The whole, and it's a, it's a whirlwind. It really is a whirlwind. Uh, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's awesome, but incredibly stressful. And, uh, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say that it changed my life overnight, but it's interesting because then once you've won, then people begin to know who you are yeah. in a different way. You have a, you know, a trademark after your name. And then people who haven't seen the play don't need to see the play because they are told that, oh, he was the guy who won. And it becomes a shortcut to a lot of, 
casting sessions. It gets you into certain rooms. But oddly enough, a lot of people came and saw that play. And a lot of people who saw it hired me. Mm. So, you know, Ryan Murphy came and saw that play years. Oh, really? And he hired me not 10 years later or nine years later, partly because I was now on his radar. Yes. And that's sort of what the Tonys do is it puts you on people's radar in a way. Um, you know, mind you, I was 40 when I won. So I was not catnip to a lot of people. I was not a young um, lead. I'm, uh, you know, a middle-aged character actor. So there's a limited trajectory for our careers, uh, but it, it definitely helped me. And I was, you know, I, it was a great, great, great experience. And it, it sounds like you've sort of always been out and you've done, you know, you've done theatre where you've, you've played gay characters and you uh, thanked your partner in your uh, Tony acceptance speech. But was it, was it, did you ever sort of consider not being out in, I guess, because you started in theatre, it was slightly different. Yeah. But were you ever worried about people really pigeonholing you? I wasn't, oddly enough. I, I, I never, I, di- I just didn't worry about it because, I, I mean, early on in Chicago, I remember there was a choice I had to make. I was giving an interview for something. I can't remember what play it was now. And the Windy City Times, which is a gay paper, wanted to interview me. And I was like, well, of, of course I'm going to talk about being gay because that's part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think I fudged it a little bit and I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm an Irishman first, I'm an atheist second, and I'm a gay person uh-huh. third. Somehow I, I felt like I had to rank my qualities. Um, but I, there was never a question for me to dissemble. Um, I don't really have a huge problem with actors who decide to stay in the closet. You know, for whatever reason they choose to. Some people are just, you know, publicity shy and just don't feel like having their personal life confused with their acting persona. Mm-hmm. And that's a mm-hmm. real valid choice to make. It doesn't pertain to character actors that much. So yeah. I, if I were a dashing leading man, I'm not sure if it would have been as easy for me. Maybe I would have made the same choices. You know, someone like Matt Bomer, I think is is extraordinary in, yeah. in, in coming out. I mean, that's, you know, Zach Quinto, um, so many people who have, you know, decided to go ahead and take that risk, that gamble, because they're leading men. And yeah. I, I, I definitely admire that. I mean, Ian McKellen, obviously, is someone who we all admire, and and that was extraordinary. And I, I do think the more it happens, the more we understand that acting is acting. We're all pretending. We're pretending to be yeah. out of people. We're pretending to kill people. We're pretending to be serial killers. <laughs> you know, we're not vampires really serial killers. And-, and vampires, exactly. No, we're pretending to be in love with a woman or that woman yeah. or, you know, or whatever, or in love with a man. So in that respect, you know, I, I, I do in this day and age like to see gay people playing gay people. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Not that straight people can't play gay people. They can. Obviously they can. And I don't want to get into a world where we are not giving work to the best candidate. However, I've definitely seen performances where I go, that's not a gay man. And that was not a gay director. And they didn't know how to fucking kiss. They just didn't get it. They didn't know what they were doing. And I think you can tell by like even like how someone touches someone else. Yeah. Where they wanna where they want to touch them. Yeah. And even and even like the closeness of a, a bunch of gay guys or a bunch of gay women and how they interact with each other, even people that aren't in relationships, I think that's something that you can as a gay person, you can sort of go, I don't gay guys don't touch each other like that. They're way more Exactly. You know, I think you can just pick it up a bit. That's funny, you know, this is totally off the subject, but I was uh, I was doing our I do a, a one man show called an Iliad um, co yeah. co created by my friend Lisa Peterson 
the set designer is her girlfriend, Rachel um, Hauk, who uh, is an amazing set designer. We have a stage manager, you know, we have sort of a bass player, Brian Ellingson, who travels with us. It's a great team. And we were doing it in California. We were doing it uh, in Santa Monica. And at one point, a friend of ours, Jason, had come to the show. And we all came back to my hotel room to have a little party. And we're all sitting around. It was great. And we're all, blah, 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 like nine of us in this room, uh, men and women. And we're all just talking, talking, talking. And there was a little bit of silence. And then suddenly someone said, hey, we're all gay. <laughs> and we looked around and we were like, uh, "Are you, wait, are you sure? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're all gay. You know, we live in this world where you don't even know you're doing it, that you're mm. somehow editing a little bit, depending on the context. You're sparing somebody's feelings or whatever you're doing. And to look around and go, oh, my God. And we all, all of our shoulders just fell like two more inches just to be in a room where you're like, ah, okay, we're all gay. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just a level of of ease, I think. It was really, really, really extraordinary. Yeah, I completely, completely understand that. And I know that with some of my friendship groups, that there is just that. There's a certain amount of, there's something that doesn't need to be said almost. Yeah. Like just a, a shorthand for an, an existence that's similar. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to ever make anybody feel bad about that, by the way. I wouldn't, oh, you know. No, God, no. It was just, that's why it was so funny that it happened, that somebody suddenly mm. said it. I was like, oh, yeah, look at that. And so once you were in Take Me Out and you had all these more castings and uh, Ryan Murphy came to see you and then boom, 10 years later, um, <laughs> <laughs> like it is with this industry, people go, oh, you're an overnight success. And you think, well, yeah, I've been doing stuff for ages. Yeah, 20 um, years. Yeah. Was it then that you started like making your move more into television? Because like over the last sort of decade, I mean, you've been in so many things that are brilliant. Even I was watching The Normal Heart and you popped up in that as well. I was like, you're in everything. (laughs) You're in so much. That was funny that, that, you know, oddly enough, it it all starts with Law and Order. Everything starts with Law and Order in New York. My God. I think I did seven or eight or nine of them, whatever, across wow. all, all the franchises. That was like my first big TV thing. And, you know, I, I was lucky to be in a town with great casting directors. A.V. Kaufman is a great casting director. Ellen Chenna with Ellen Lewis, um, some of the great casting directors in New York um, who gave me jobs um, in film, mostly in film. And it was a great agent of mine in uh, California, David Rose, I think it was, who pitched me to Alan Ball for True Blood. Right. And was like, you know who you want. You want Dennis O'Hare. And you better get him now because he's not going to be available. So you know who you want. And that was 2008 or nine. So that was not, that was, that was, you know, five, six years on from the Tony. And Alan said yes. And that was kind of my first, you know, real, real television job where I had a character that people remembered and it sort of put mm-hmm. me on the map in a different way. And American Horror Story came uh, the year after that. I think um, the first thing came after that. Uh, and that's sort of, and I did Brothers and Sisters, which was a show we did with Rob Lowe before that. So that. And that was a nice part. I had a nice recurring part. And I had done TV gigs here and there, but that True Bub is sort of the one that really put me on the map in many ways. And then, of course, Horror Story. Um, and uh, I love it. You know, I, I love TV work because I love the chance to work on a character over time. I love mm-hmm. the camaraderie of the same people to work with. I like having a job that's that's you know, dependable. <laughs> that's not yeah. going to go away. You know, I, I, I do love all of that. It must be amazing working with Ryan Murphy. I'm, I'm such a fan of so much of his stuff. I just think he's so brilliant. But 
with American Horror Story, I mean, it's like a rep theatre cast. Like, yeah. it must be amazing to go back to those actors. You know, I know that you haven't been in every series, but to do Murder House and then go back for Hotel. No, it was hilarious. You know, I, I, I was in, married in love with Jessica Lange in season one, and then we had a <laughs> disastrous falling out or in love with her. And then I was her tongueless butler and in love with her in season three. And then I was a con man trying to con her in season four. And then she was gone. And then, um, you know, season five was me and, and Kathy Bates mostly yes. um, uh, as, as sidekicks. And then season six for me was a weird season. <laughs> I was the crazy guy with the beard in the basement. Yep. But, you know, it, it, it was amazing to have all these different kind of, I, I call them layers of relationships, you know, layers yeah. of relationships with, with Evan Peters, with Sarah Paulson, with, with Kathy, with Thaisa Farmiga, you know, different echoes that you have across the seasons. Um, I, I, I just love that. I thought it was extraordinary. It's such a great idea. Yeah, it's so like, yeah, I, I I was so delighted when series two came out and I was like, oh, it's the same people. It's yeah, the same cast. Yeah, it's it's yeah. just a different time and a different version of people. But and, and also the thing I love about Ryan Murphy's work, especially in American Horror Story, is that there are, there's so many sort of LGBTQ plus characters yeah. where it's just, you know, in, in this world, it's of course, there's going to be gay characters. Of course, there's going to be love affairs of, of all different types. And that must be, as, as a gay actor, as a gay person watching it, it's a great thing to see. So I can imagine it must be a, a great thing to sort of get the script and be like, oh, great. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he, he is sort of, I think, um, effortlessly inclusive. It doesn't feel mm. pushed. It doesn't feel like no, a, a badge he's wearing. It doesn't feel like a thing. I mean, you know, actors who are differently abled, you know, actors with Down syndrome, you know, Freak Show was a, was a, a season where we, act, where we employed people who wouldn't ordinarily get to have a leading part or have a, have a difficulty sometimes getting work. Um, yeah. And I love that about about him. And again, he doesn't do it as a as a shtick. It's sort of an ethos with him. You know, Ryan is one of the people who I think about three or four years ago started a project to guarantee that fifty percent of all the directors were female on his shows. Because That's there is this, great. you know, thing about, yes, we'd love to have more female directors, but they don't have enough experience. Well, how do they get experience? You get hired. And so that was sort of his his um, mission was to create this, you know, bed of experience for people so that that, what, that excuse was taken away. And he was true to his word. And I, 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 I laud him for that. So many initiatives that he has launched that he's followed up on. I mean, Pose is another example of an effortlessly inclusive and diverse mm -hmm. world where he's giving a platform to people who aren't always amplified. And I think that's so great. Yeah, it's so brilliant. So now that you're sort of, you've been living in Paris for a while, you must go back to the States for work or come over here. I know that the initial reason was for you to go, oh my God, I can't raise my son yeah. in Paris. But is it, is, is, do you work out there as well? Because I know you speak a bunch of languages as well. <laughs> You know, it's um, – I'm working mostly in London, oddly enough. So I did Tartuffe in London, and then I'm doing a series for HBO called The Nevers. Yeah, I read about that. It's a great gig. Um, we you know, we filmed a bunch, and they got closed down, of course, because um, of COVID. But we'll come back. We're coming back. And we shoot that way in West London. And so I was living on the Eurostar, which I adore, and going back and forth. So oddly enough, living in Paris was perfect. Yeah. Because had I gotten that – you know, if I had gotten that job in New York, it would have been a lot of travel. And as it is, it's very doable from Paris. Um, 
I did in the movie called The Postcard Killings in London. I, I did my one-man show here in Paris at the theater, the Theater du Rampoint. And uh, I've, uh, I did a movie uh, last year for these uh, crazy, wonderful French filmmakers, Benoit Delépine and Gustave Carverne. It's a film called um, uh, Effacer l'Historique. And it's with a stand-up comedian named Blanche. Oh, God, I can't remember her last name. She's super, super well-known. And, of course, I can't remember her last name. She's extraordinary. Um, and then I'm, I'm sort of involved with a little theater piece here that I'm developing with two, uh, a director and a producer. Um, so, you You're know, but busy. The majority, I'm, I'm staying busy. The majority I'm of my busy. work is going to be uh, in English-speaking circles. And so yeah. – I did American Gods last year, and we shot in Toronto. So I was back and forth there a lot, and um, I imagine that's going to continue to be the case. I'm, I'm sort of expecting one day to get a job in LA again, which will be a real, you know, it's eleven hour flight. That'll be a real thing, uh, a real yeah. hurdle to deal with. New York is, you know, eight hour flight, um, and only six hours difference. Whereas LA is nine hours difference and eleven hour flight. That's a, that's a hard thing with a kid. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think? You know, being a dad and, and and being a husband, do you think you'll ever your family will ever move back to the states, or do you think that you're now will stay in Europe? So hard to say. You know, I, I really, I, I, my gut is that we will not move back to the states. But who knows what the world could look like? God mm. knows, none of us foresaw this world that we're in right now. No, not even um, a little bit. You know, none of us, none of us planned this. Um, who knows what the world will be like? Who knows what circumstances will dictate? You know, we're assuming my son will at some point in his life want to go back to the U.S. Um, we have lives back there, kind of. You know, I have a lot of family back there. I have a lot of friends back there. I'm loving Europe. I'm loving being here. I love London. I could foresee myself, um, you know, moving back to London at some point. It's hard to say. It really is hard to say. You know, I do think I'm also a writer, and I spend most of my time writing. I'm writing a novel, dystopian novel. And that takes up a lot of headspace. And then I'm working on two versions of the same play with my co-creator, Lisa Peterson. And that's a play for Zoom, which we're doing for New York Theatre Workshop. Oh, wow. And so we do that usually three times a week. We meet and we work on Zoom um, an hour a night. Yeah. So I spend a lot of my time writing with her and thinking about that play. And then you're being a dad as well. How do you, how do you juggle well. the time? I stay up late. You know, my son goes to bed and then I, I, I stay up for three hours. I, I'm up till two in the morning usually. That's when I really get things done uh, because I can focus. Um, and also, you know, you squeeze time in. I'll, my husband and I share the burden and I'll just say to him, got to tap me out. I need to get tapped out. I need an hour. And I'll walk. I'll leave. I'll walk away. I'll take my computer and I'll go write. Um, yeah. I write while I walk. I use a dictaphone thing. And so I, as I'm walking, I, I actually write. And then I send it to myself and then clean it up. Um, it's a different kind of writing, but I've gotten very good at speaking into it. That's a great way of doing it. That's, I mean, that's, uh, I, I'm known to pull over in a car and start going, I think there's an idea in this. Yeah. Into my phone, uh, which is a weird way of sort of futuristic way of working somehow. Um, how long have you, how long have you been a father? How, how old is your son? He's nine. Nine. So that, that's a fun age. It, it, it is, he's a challenging kid, you know, I'm not going to lie. He, he is a handful. I mean, today has been mostly good. Um, we've had some really, really, really tough times with him. Um, COVID did not help. Uh, no. That was not a, not a, not a good, um, maybe it did, you know, in a weird way. It, it was a crucible and it, 
it focused all of our attentions on some issues that we probably have to deal with anyway mm-hmm. about him and his behavior. And it all just came to a boil. And um, we had some really crazy, stressful, awful times. And uh, we're finding our way out of it. And we're, we're asking for help, the appropriate people. We have parent coaches and we have psychologists. Mm. <laughs> we have, you know, neuropsychologists and lots of, lots of consulting. Um, I'm deeply in love with this kid. Uh, he's a joy. I love spending time with him. He surprises me. He's beautiful. He makes me weep. Um, with joy uh, half the time uh, and weep with frustration. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's every parent, you know, I think every parent would say the same thing. Um, You know, having a kid, I think has been a more, it's been much more challenging than I ever could have imagined. Um, And the thing that I think surprised me as a parent is how much it makes you look at yourself, how, how much you're looking at your own flaws. You're constantly going, wow, boy, do I need to fix myself. <laughs> boy, do I need to fix this right. or fix that. And that that's something I didn't expect. And you know, you, you also get compassion for your own parents. You also realize you are your parents in ways that you don't always want to know. Um, it, it's it's a real journey. Every day is a school day. It's just they're going to school, but you're still learning, right? Well, and sometimes it really was a school day. My God, from March 16th onward, it was a real school day here. Well, um, I ask that. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy to hear about your career and hear thank about your you. process and hear about everything. And I'm, yeah, I'm such a theatre buff. I just, yeah, I was so excited to chat to you. Um, I, I have one more question to ask you before I let you go into the night to do your writing. Um, and it's a question that I ask at the end of the episode to everyone. Let's say you or someone like you, if you don't want it to be you, uh-huh. um, that that's like that boy at Northwestern that was maybe going to Northwestern, didn't want to be gay, didn't really want to be who he was. If you could pick up the phone and talk to him or talk to a kid out there, we've got loads of people that listen all across the globe, some listening countries where, you know, homosexuality is yet to be decriminalized or live in places where they can't be themselves. What advice would you give to them? Uh, you know, I'm in recovery, so I would say wait for the miracle. Because I really do believe that, you know, I think that it gets better slogan is, is right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've no idea what life holds for you. You have no idea what's in front of you. Don't miss it. You know, wait for the miracle because it's there. Perfect. What a gorgeous way to end the show. Thank you, Dennis. Thank My you pleasure. so much for your really, time. Really, really, really great talking with you. Well, that was my chat with the wonderful Dennis O'Hare. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope that you did too. Um, If you want to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I hope you have a brilliant week and I'll be with you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. 